Open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We are continuing our study of our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7 has some additional things to teach us in verses 7 through 14, which is what we'll consider this morning. Before we look at those lessons, though, in verses 7 through 14, I must tell you what the Lord is going to conclude this sermon with. And here are His words from verses 21 through 23 of this chapter. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I must tell you before I start what it says in verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Not for you to call upon the name of the Lord and end it there. It is for you to do the will of the Lord. Those are the ones that will be ushered into heaven according to our Savior's own application of this sermon. And so as we back up the page to look at verses 7 through 14, remember that it is the doing of these things by which we lay hold of eternal life. It is the doing of these things by which we put in store a good foundation against the time to come. So now let us come back to verse 7. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 7. There are four lessons here, and let's get all four. Let me tell you before we begin, and let me tell you at the end, and hope that in between I've explained them to you. There are four lessons. First of all, the promise of a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. In verses 7 and 8. Amen. Then in verses 9 through 11, a comparison with fathers showing that our Father in heaven is far superior to any Father on earth, which ought to give us great confidence and boldness in approaching our Father in heaven in prayer. Then verse 12, which is commonly known as the golden rule, tells us what the real intent of the law and the prophets was which the Pharisees missed, which Jesus taught in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and that is the last verse of the body of the Sermon on the Mount. The verses after verse 12 are his summary, his conclusion, his application, and if you can understand the words, his invitation. And it's a little different than the invitations men give today. But from verses 13 to the end, He's bringing it all to a close. His last lesson is in verse 12. And then we'll see verses 13 and 14 that tell us the way of righteousness, the way that pleases the Lord Jesus Christ is neither popular nor is it easy. It is the straight gate, that means a narrow gate, a restrictive and tight gate, a straight gate and a narrow way. It's neither popular, very few find it, and neither is it easy. The whole Christian world today is trying to make religion as easy as possible. They call it seeker-sensitive. They say, come as you are. They say, if you come back, we promise not to throw the book at you. And yet, the Bible says it is a straight gate. And you should understand that word straight, not as the shortest distance between two points, which is S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T, but as a straight jacket, S-T-R-A-I-T, meaning restrictive and binding, tight and demanding upon us. Those are our four lessons. Let's look at them. Let me read the first two verses, verses 7 and 8, that have the first lesson. 
Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God from heaven, our blessed and only potentate said, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Thank you, Lord, for such a wonderful promise. Now let me show you its context and see if I can't put a smile on your heart. The previous verse to these two is verse 6. This the same Lord Jesus Christ said, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs. Neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. The last lesson we had in this sermon was the Lord Jesus Christ telling us that we do not owe the truth to any fool or scorner. In fact, we ought to let fools and scorners fall into the ditch where they belong. When the disciples came to Jesus on one occasion and said to him, Don't you know the Pharisees were offended by your language? I think he probably did. I think he probably did before he started speaking. I think he probably did before he had breakfast that morning. That he knew the Pharisees would be offended. He told his disciples, he said, Every plant that my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. They be blind, leaders of the blind, let them both fall into the ditch. Now that is not popular religion. That is not seeker sensitive. But it is the Lord Jesus Christ's religion. And what he has taught in that sixth verse is that we do not have to waste our time, nor do we need to have a sense of obligation, nor do we have any responsibility, nor should we share the precious things of the gospel to fools and scorners, those that love the world, those that want to make fun of religion, let them go their merry way. They're having their heaven now, and hell is coming soon. We do not have an obligation toward them. Because if you lay out the precious things of the Word of God to them, they will first of all trample them under their feet. They will not give those precious things the respect and honor that the truth of God's Word deserves. Second of all, they will take your words and twist them and turn and cut you with what you have said. So there's practical wisdom in this verse. And there's a theological distinction made between the righteous and the wicked. Leave them alone. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ having said, the holy things of God and the precious pearls of the gospel do not belong to all men. And he calls some men dogs and pigs in verse 6. Those are sober words. But look what he says next to those that are his children. Ask, and it shall be given you. Don't give it to them. They don't deserve it. They won't give it the respect it deserves. And they'll turn and use those things against you. But you go ahead and ask, and it shall be given you. There is a great difference between the righteous and the wicked. It is not a fine line. And I will continue that this evening. The assurance of your salvation ought to be great. There isn't a fine line. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. If you come asking, I will give. If you come seeking, I'll help you find. If you'll come knocking at my door, I will open to you. How different verse 7 is from verse 6. What a distinction is made by our Lord Jesus Christ. Ask. Just ask. And it shall be given you. You know, it doesn't say ask and we'll figure out a price that you can pay. It doesn't say ask and we'll bargain as to what you can do for me, for me to give to you. It says ask and it shall be given you. Wonderful words. You know, a fine subdivision, a good subdivision, a subdivision you want to live in, has no soliciting signs as you enter the subdivision. Because the people that live there don't want the gypsies coming to their door selling garbage cleaners for high prices. They don't want college students coming during the summer 
trying to sell magazine subscriptions to pay their way through school. No soliciting. You know, because we don't want to be solicited. Now, there's a God in heaven who is so far and high and lofty above us, you might think that he would have a no soliciting sign in the Bible to tell us, don't bother me. But he's our father. And look what he says. Bother me. Bother me. Did Jacob bother him one night? Did Jacob bother him all night long, wrestling with the Lord one night? Did God change Jacob's name because Jacob had power with God and had prevailed and won the wrestling match? Indeed he did. God changed Jacob's name to Israel because he was a prince and had power with God. God wants us to solicit him, and so the the word is, ask. That's an imperative verb. It's telling you to ask. I want you children to ask. Has a father ever said to his children, what would you like? What can I give you to make you happy? Have you ever thought that towards your own children? There's a God in heaven that's our heavenly father that thinks that way a whole lot better than we do. And he says, ask, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. We are the children of our father in heaven and he wants us to ask. He wants us to seek him. He wants us to knock on the opportunities He gives us, and He will open, and He will help us find. He is a gracious and glorious Father in heaven. We can look at these three verbs, ask, seek, and knock. They do start with the letters A-S-K, which which is ask. It is a verse about prayer, but it's a little bit more than prayer. Asking is certainly prayer. Asking it shall be given you is certainly a verse about prayer. But then it says seek. Now, are there things that we are to be seeking in the Word of God? Did David say, Thou hast said unto me, Seek ye my face. Thy face, Lord, will I seek. Is there a reward to those that diligently seek? Are we told to seek first the kingdom of God? That is more than just asking. That is going out of our way, setting the priorities of our lives, and setting setting in action those choices that make God's kingdom first. It is going after a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is going after His kingdom. That is to seek something, is to pursue it. It's to look for it. It's to chase it. And He wants us to chase it. The Apostle Paul was still running a race in Philippians chapter 3. And he was running it with all his might. But do you know what the Lord promises? Seek, and ye shall find. Jeremiah 29 and verse 13 says, If you will seek Me with your whole heart, I will be found of you. Jeremiah 29, 13. He wants us to seek and He promises to help us find what we're seeking. And the first emphasis in a passage like this ought always to be spiritual things that we're seeking, not carnal things. If you will seek first the spiritual things, He promises to add all the carnal things. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. When He gives us opportunities, when the Bible speaks of there being the potential for a child of God to be so filled with the Spirit that he understands the dimensions of Christ's love until he is filled with all the fullness of God, that is a door that we ought to be knocking on. And he says, if you'll knock, I'll open it unto you. And it's in one verse. Here are precious promises. Ask, seek, and knock. I will give you what you want and what you need. We can also look and see that the Savior is teaching us that once we have asked, we ought to make our effort in seeking. And when He shows us doors of opportunity, we ought to knock on them and go through them. So we can see that as well. That not only do we ask, but we also go and put forth some effort. When we ask for a job, we still send out resumes. That's seeking the job. When we ask for our daily bread in prayer, we still get up every day and go earn that bread. He blesses the means to give us that bread. But we ask, we seek, and we knock. If we're looking for a job and we've sent in our resumes and we've we've prayed about it, then we've done our asking and our seeking. But then whenever somebody gives us a, a tip, or whenever we hear that someone may be hiring, we go knock. We do all three. And the Lord blesses the combination of efforts. But I first of all want to remind you that when it says ask, seek, and knock, it is spiritual blessings. It is spiritual revival. 
It is soul prosperity that we ought to be asking, seeking, and knocking for above all other things. Because if you will make those the pursuit of your life and of your soul, He will take care of the rest, as I'm about to show you in dramatic terms. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. Oh, I love this story. This Bible story. And when I say story, I don't mean a fable. I mean a historical event recorded in the Word of God. I love this story when I was a child. I still love it as an adult. And I want to hurt you with pleasure with this story. Can I hurt you with pleasure? Can I make an application from 1 Kings 3 that will hurt it so good? It's so precious. 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 5. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give thee. Son, Solomon, what do you want? What do you want? Wow. The God of heaven. Is his bank account large? Can he accomplish physical things? Domestic things? Family things? Financial, professional things? Is God able to give great gifts? That God said, ask what I shall give thee. As a child, I'd hear that story. The Lord appeared to me tonight and said, ask what I shall give thee. I've got a little list. I've got my shopping list made up. You know, if the Lord were to say that to me, now I don't mean, I'm not trying to be foolish, young people, children. Look at this man. Solomon had the God of heaven say to him, ask what I shall give thee. Whatever you want, I want to give it to you. What's on your mind that I could give you? Now Solomon was wise. Solomon was wise and he made a choice in his answer to God's offer. He said, I'm only a little child. My father was a great king. I am not ready to fill his shoes and to be a great king over this people, which is your nation. They need and deserve a wise and understanding king. And so I ask you, because of your offer, will you please give me a wise and understanding heart that I will know how to conduct myself as a great king so that your people will have a great leader. Lord, give me thy fear and thy wisdom and thy understanding that I might be a knowledgeable king. It says in verse 10, And the speech pleased the Lord, that Solomon had asked this thing. Now Solomon had already pleased the Lord with 1,000 burnt offerings upon an altar. But now he pleased the Lord even further by asking for something spiritual rather than for something carnal. And I am giving you a hint. I am giving you a tip. I am giving you a secret from the Word of God if you want to have the Lord's blessing in your life. Make your first petitions and the priority of your asking and your seeking and your knocking the spiritual things of God's Word, and He'll take care of the rest. The thing that Solomon asked for, wisdom. What is wisdom? The power of right judgment. Knowing how to always decide what is the right and best and only thing to do in any given situation. He asked for that. He wanted wisdom more than anything else. Children, you'd be thinking of a car, wouldn't you? You'd be thinking of a great job, a great wife, a great career, to grow a foot. But Solomon asked for wisdom. And it pleased the Lord that he had asked this thing. Verse 11, So God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast asked riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment, behold, I have done according to thy words. Ask, and it shall be given thee. Lo, I have given thee a wise and understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, 
both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. And if thou wilt walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments, as thy father David did walk, then I will lengthen thy days. He gave him long life and riches and honor like no other king. And there's a reason, because he asked first for wisdom. Would it be wonderful if God appeared to you and said, Ask what I shall give thee. He's appearing to you this morning in a clearer vision, in a clearer way than he ever appeared to Solomon. Turn back in your Bibles to Matthew 7 and verse 7. Because what does Matthew 7 and verse 7 say? Ask, and it shall be given you. And I have it in writing. Solomon had to wake up in the morning and wonder if it was a dream. It was. <laughs> he had to wonder if it was a dream from God or a dream from his imagination. Now, the Lord confirmed it to him in the morning. But I, the reason I'm saying all that is because the Bible tells us that the written Word of God is superior to hearing God's voice from heaven in the presence of heavenly and earthly witnesses to verify what you heard. Second Peter 1, 16-21 Peter was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He heard the voice of God from heaven. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were there. And James and John were there. But Peter said, the Word of God is more sure. More sure. And look what you've got in Matthew 7, 7. Believe it this morning. Ask, and it shall be given you. This is the Word of the Lord to us. Ask, and it shall be given you. If I was to turn you to James chapter 4 and verse 2, it says, ye have not because ye ask not. You don't have what you ought to have because you haven't asked for it. Have you gone to your Heavenly Father in bold confidence and flat out asked Him for it? You say, I've been asking for a lot of things. I've been asking for business success. I've been asking for the Lord to bless my career. Wait a minute. You're nothing like Solomon. I'm sorry. God isn't going to answer your prayer. Because James 4, 3 says... Ye ask, and ye have not, because ye ask amiss to consume it on your lust. If we were to get Solomon's priorities, he would take care of those things, and he would give us the greater riches anyway, and that's wisdom, understanding, the fear of the Lord, spiritual revival, and soul prosperity is based on asking God for it. Ask, and it shall be given you. James 4.2 tells us you don't have because you don't ask. And so, first of all, we've got to ask ourselves, do I pray like I should? And we all can answer this morning, no. Then we have to ask, do I ever ask for things to consume it on my lust? Do I ever get my priorities out of line to where I'm asking for things rather than spiritual blessing? And our answer, yes, we often do that. And so don't blame God that Matthew 7, 7 isn't as true in your life as it should be. Matthew 7, 7 is absolutely, finally, totally, completely true. You have not met the conditions yet because you haven't asked and you've been asking amiss. I am not going to take the time this morning, but anyone that wants it, I will get you the outline of the ten rules that the Bible tells us about praying. Praying is not complicated. Once you see the rules, you'd say, yes, those are obvious. If I was really praying, I would be fulfilling those. And we've been over that list not too long ago. The young men of the church did it, and I reviewed it recently, because it's important for us this year. It's the rules of effectual praying. I'm not even going to read them to you. I don't even want to confuse your minds. What I want to leave with you is, ask, and it shall be given you. The, the God of heaven has said to you what he said to Solomon. But he's warned you, you don't have because you don't ask, and you ask and you don't obtain because you're asking amiss. You're asking just because you want to be fat, comfortable, and happy. If you'll put me first by asking for things spiritual, if you'll seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, I'll add all these other things unto you. I'll take care of all that. See, Solomon understood, and that's in the Bible for your learning. Solomon knew do you think riches pass through his mind? I think so. Do you think his enemies pass through his mind? I think so. But he said, Lord, I want wisdom. Give me wisdom that I will be a great king. 
That pleased the Lord. He got the wisdom and he got all the other goodies along with it. And I'm not praying, I'm not preaching this morning for you to get goodies. Because I'd rather have a poor church that's wise than a rich church that's foolish. May the Lord save us from the one and bless us to be the other. Do you think prayer is for you? I come to verse 8 and it says, for everyone that asketh. Well, I would say that everyone includes you. You say, well, I'm not very important. Jesus said, for everyone that asketh, receiveth. And he that seeketh, findeth, and to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. There's no qualification in here except for you to come asking. Do you fear the Lord and believe Him? Do you believe His promises? Can you claim them by faith? Because He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Everyone can pray. We don't want to miss the everyone. There's the lesson. God's promise to answer our prayers. And they're powerful. Ask, seek, and knock. I've given you some secrets from the Word of God. They're not secrets that I have. They're secrets that God's given us. The secrets are, if you will seek spiritual things first, not to consume carnal things on your lusts, He will give you the other things. It's a wonderful, powerful passage. God has done more for you than He did for Solomon. He put it in writing. You don't have to wonder if it was your dream or a dream sent from heaven. You don't have to wonder if it was a vision from God or another spirit. It's in the writing. It's in Matthew 7, 7 and Matthew 7 and verse 8. And I hope that we'll believe it and that we'll ask and that we'll ask for spiritual things and trust God to take care of the rest of our needs. He will. Let's come to verse 9. Or what man is there of you who if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil... Know how to give good gifts unto your children. How much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask Him? What a powerful passage. Verses 7 and 8 are God's promise. Ask and it shall be given you. It's just a flat out promise. But then in verses 9 through 11, He makes a comparison for you to have an understanding of the attitude He has toward giving you what you ask for. He says, what man is there of you? Now, this is a rhetorical question. There's a question mark at the end of verse 9, at verse 10, and verse 11. These are rhetorical questions. The answer to these questions are obvious to any reader. What man is there of you who, if his son asked bread, will he give him a stone? What father is there in this whole assembly that if his son came up to him and said, Daddy, may I have a piece of bread? the father would give him a stone. No father would do that. You say, well, I once knew a man. I don't care about the man you once knew because you don't know what you're talking about. This is a general rule that is obvious to all other readers except you. Okay, we got that one taken care of. Exceptions do not nullify rules. Exceptions establish rules. The rule is, no father would give a stone to his son when his son said, Daddy, can I have a piece of bread? Jesus goes on in verse 10 to ask it again, this rhetorical question. Or if he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent? If his father is eating a fillet of fish from the golden arches, and the son says, Daddy, can I have a fillet of fish? The father is not going to give him a snake. No father would. That's why Jesus said, What man is there among you that would treat his children that way when the child came and asked for something? Because there is within the heart of men, when they have their little child that is so dependent on them, when they come and ask for something, we want to satisfy it. We don't want to disappoint them. We want to give. We want to please them. We want to put a smile on their face. We want to fulfill that need. We want to answer that request. It's in the heart of a man. It's in the heart of every man to want to do that to his children. So Jesus could appeal to a universal fact that men would want to please their children when the children come and ask. But now look at his comparison. 
Verse 11. If ye then, and I love this, this would not go over well in very many psychology classes that teach the goodness of man and the, the wonder of the human spirit. Jesus has just appealed to a fact of some goodness that resides in man, of wanting to please his children. But when Jesus is describing the human condition, and the context is something good that man does, he says, if ye then, being evil, because he knows our goodness is so tainted, corrupted, and depraved in comparison to his, even when we're doing something that appears to be good. Do you know sometimes a father is doing it for his son to think he's a big cheese? You know, for his son to think he's something great. Sometimes a father gives his son something so that his son will look better than the other kids down the street. You know, all those things creep into men when they give things to their children. And the Lord just blew through all that and said, there really isn't such a thing as the goodness of man. He said, if ye then, being evil, sinners, selfish, depraved, wicked, profane, vile, the way the Bible describes us in all of our terrible splendor. If ye then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, if you know how to do this, if you have figured it out, that when your child comes and says, Daddy, can I go to the ball game? Will I ever be able to go to a ball game? The father wants to take him. If ye then being evil know how. The emphasis is on know how. If you have within your heart a sense of compassion of wanting to do something good for your child when they ask, the comparison is, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask Him? If a father will not disappoint a son with a stone when he asks for bread, how much less will our Heavenly Father ever give a stone when you ask for bread? Do you follow the power of this argument? Jesus gave us this. And when you pray, you ought to use this. To pray intelligently, which is one of the ten rules of effectual praying, is to reason with God based on His own promises. Lord, I'm coming to You and asking for bread. Please don't give me a stone. Remind Him of His own promise. He cannot go back on His Word. He cannot break His promises. He cannot break His arguing from the lesser to the greater in these three verses that He gave us. Rejoice in these verses. These verses give you power in prayer, boldness and confidence. Because you know in your own heart that if your child was to ask you for something, you would want to get it for them. And you know what you usually want to do? You want to do it well. You not only want to get what they're asking for, you want to get a better one. I mean, now I may be narrowing some of the fathers down a little bit. But when your son asks for something, I hope you really want to show him how much you care about him by getting something really good. Well, if ye being evil know how to get really good things for your sons when they ask you, how much more does your Heavenly Father want to really give you good things when you ask Him? Powerful comparison. Lord, help us to learn it. Are there any fathers that would intentionally jilt their children? Jesus would answer, no. It's a universal rule. But my, my feelings of affection and my desire to give in answer to your requests is far greater than you've ever felt toward your children. Just come to me and ask. Ask and it shall be given you. Because I love to please my children when they ask me. I love to please my children more than you love to please your children. Ask me. So we have three more verses on prayer and he's going to leave prayer. We've been told the promise. Ask and it shall be given you. Then we've been given the comparison in verses 9 through 11. And it is a wonderful comparison. If sinful and selfish men know how to give good gifts to their children, and they do, how much more does a sinless and selfless God show toward us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? There's no restraint on God when you go to Him. Now, I got, a, I got something for you that think that there's a whole lot of fathers out there that aren't moved by their children. Let me read them to you. 
The first one is Psalm 27 and verse 10. And it sounds like this. Psalm 27.10 When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. That's Psalm 27 and verse 10. Listen to this one. Can a woman forget her sucking child? Can a woman despise her nursing baby? That she should not have compassion on the son of her womb. Now that's as extreme as it gets in human relations. A, a mother nursing a baby. That's as strong of a bond as there is among men. Can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palm of of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. Now, is that good? That's our Father in heaven. We would ordinarily say a woman cannot lack compassion for her nursing baby that she's given birth to herself. But the Lord says, even if they do, I will not forsake thee. Lay hold of these promises, brethren, and when you go to the Lord in prayer, believing, and ye shall receive all things. Believe when you go that He wants to give you what you ask for. More than anyone that you know has ever wanted to give to someone else what they asked for. Let's come, you're at Matthew 7, let's look at verse 12. Oh, before I jump to verse 12. I just have to remind you one more time so that you don't end up accusing God of not hearing prayer. You have not because you ask not. You say, well, I've been praying. Well, then I've got to lay number two on you again. You ask and obtain not because you ask amiss. You're not asking in the right priority. The Lord wants you seeking Him, His kingdom, and His righteousness first. Then he will add all those other things unto you. If I was to turn you to the Luke version of this passage, the Luke version of this passage says, How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Oh, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Not a bigger car, not a bigger house, not a higher paying job. Not more customers in your business, but the Holy Spirit. If you were to pray for the Holy Spirit, the other things would be added to your life. So remember, you have not because you ask not. You ask and obtain not because you ask amiss. May the Lord help you remember your proper priorities and let Him take care of the other things. And like I've already said, I'd rather have us getting the Holy Spirit and wisdom than I would prospering businesses. Prospering businesses will do your soul no good. It's never worked before to help men be righteous. It's always stolen their hearts, according to the Word of God. So we ought to be praying for spiritual wisdom and understanding by the Holy Ghost. Verse 12, Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Here's the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now the word, therefore, starts off the verse. Therefore. Now this is one of the trickier therefores in the Bible. Remember when you see a therefore, you know that the Bible writer and the Holy Spirit is drawing a conclusion. Therefore is a logical term. Because of this, therefore. Now what's the there, you're supposed to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? And the therefore in this verse is not so readily apparent unless you really think. Because how does the golden rule equate to praying directly? Why does it say, therefore, in light of what I've just taught you about prayer in verses 7 through 11, therefore, I want you to treat others the way that you want to be treated. And this is the whole law and the prophets. I want to remind you of a couple things. First of all, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is not the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. If that's the Sermon on the Mount, then Jesus preached for about seven minutes and quit. 
This is how it was summarized to us by Matthew. Because if you go read the other accounts, it's in a different order. There's more material. It's different. This isn't the whole sermon. These are summary statements given to us by the writer through the Holy Spirit. The second thing I want to say to you is if you back all the way up to the front end of the sermon, Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law and the prophets. I came not to destroy but to fulfill. He knew that his ministry was such that the Pharisees would accuse him of overruling the law of Moses because he did not put the emphasis on the ceremonial rituals that the Pharisees put on the ceremonial rituals. This verse basically stands alone, though it comes in this order in this book. It is not in this order in Luke. It's in a very different setting. It's in a setting with how you treat your neighbor. You know, being... If, if a man smite thee on the cheek, then turn to him the other also. It's in that context. It's in give, and it shall be given unto you. And that's where this verse belongs. Because look at what Jesus says in the verse. Therefore, is drawing a conclusion to all that he's taught about how we are to treat our neighbor. There's two commandments in the Bible. We can summarize the whole Bible two ways. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. If you were to keep those two commandments, you would be keeping the whole Bible. Jesus here says, Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. He started out by saying, I am not come to destroy the law and the prophets. I'm come to show you their real intent. I'm come to fulfill them. I'm come to expand them back out and apply them the way that they were intended to be applied. And that's what he's saying in this verse. He's summarizing, if you want to know the law and the prophets, it's doing to others the way you would have them do to you. It's not the ceremonial washing of hands of the Pharisees. It's not all of their little ticky tithes of the herb, their herb gardens. It's treating others. And hasn't he taught us that all the way through? Isn't Matthew 5 filled with verses about not hating your brother in your heart? Not committing adultery against your neighbor? Not practicing an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but showing mercy? If a man smites you on the cheek, there's no place for revenge. There's no place for going home and belly aching to your wife about how someone smacks you on the cheek. When you do that, all you do is show that you are an infant in maturity and your heart is black in spirituality. Because the Word of God says, turn to another cheek. So what if somebody hits you? So what if somebody takes something from you? Give. Suffer abuse. Suffer yourself to be defrauded. And so from Matthew 5 to Matthew 6, if ye forgive men their trespasses, so will your Heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. Into chapter 7, with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. He comes to his conclusion. I don't want to chase that further. I'd be happy to explain that further to anybody else who wants to understand that therefore. That therefore is therefore for the whole sermon. That therefore is summarizing what the law and the prophets really are. It's not summarizing prayer. It's just its location appears that way unless you back up further and see that the way you treat other people, and it ought to be the way you want to be treated, that is the real law of God. That is really what the prophets taught. See, the Pharisees had no mercy. When a man needed to be healed, what would the Pharisees, if a man needed to be healed on the Sabbath day, what would the Pharisees say to Jesus? Can't you wait till tomorrow? Would a, would a ruler of the synagogue stand up and say, can't you come back tomorrow to be healed? No mercy. But see, if you knew, you understood verse 12, You'd want that man healed right then, because isn't that how you'd want to be healed? Would you want to come back tomorrow? And that's the law and the prophets. That's the real intent. Listen, this little summary statement of the Lord Jesus Christ was blasting those Pharisees. Those Pharisees put all the emphasis, for those of you that look at the website, there's a couple new documents out there. The Pharisees would strap Scripture onto their foreheads. They would strap Scripture onto their arms. It was called phylacteries. 
straps of leather with the Word of God written on it or held in boxes, and they would go around with a box on their forehead that had Bible verses written and shoved inside the box as if that was spiritual. Can you believe that? Believe it. It's the truth. Jesus said, these men, these Pharisees, these hypocrites, they want to be seen of men as being spiritual by enlarging the border of their garments. They want to be seen in public like a nun wants to be seen, and so she wears a habit. They want to be seen like priests want to be seen, so they wear their shirts backwards. Jesus said they want to be seen of men, but that is not how you're measured in my religion. The way you're measured is how you treat your neighbor. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And what a rule that is. Every spouse, how do you want to be loved by the person you married? Do you want them to be forgiving? Do you want them to be affectionate? Do you want them to be verbal? Do you want them to initiate lovemaking? Well, now all these things are easy if Matthew 7.12 is true. Do it yourself. If you're forgiving, if you're affectionate, if you're verbal, if you initiate lovemaking, the God of heaven's going to see that and you have fulfilled His law. And I'm sure it will bear wonderful fruit. And you all know it will if you were to try it. It's just that you're too selfish by nature. We're all too selfish by nature. And so what we have is a verse that cuts at our selfishness and it cuts deep. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We all want to be forgiven quickly. So what should we do? Forgive quickly. We want our actions to be viewed in the best light even when they look questionable. So what should we do? View other actions and put them in the best light even when they're questionable. Never never do any evil surmising. Never speculate that a person must have an evil heart because of something they did. Instead, we assume the opposite. They have a good heart, and ours is too bad to recognize it. That's how we want them looking at us. We want our authority to be honored, whether it's in the home or in the workplace. So what should we do with the authority that's over us? Honor it. This is a simple rule, isn't it? And it works. I want to tell you something. If there's one verse in the Bible, if it was ever practiced, it would change the world. It would change a home. If you required this of your children, it would change your family. If we were to practice this in this church, our church would prosper and be great. And so we want to work at this. We want our spouses to love us and to initiate kindness. So we should do that to them. Because this is what the Word of the Lord tells us to do. And He will bless that effort. And it works. But that isn't the real key. The real key is what is the law and the prophets? What does the Bible really say to me? The Bible really says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We want our children to obey and honor us, so we should obey and honor our parents. Oh, that sounds, that sounds good. I have seven children. I'm only one myself. So you mean all I've got to do is honor my parents and love them and try to treat them well and maybe God will bless that rule and I'll have seven that honor and love me? That's a good deal. I like that deal. But whether it's a good deal or not, whether my children ever do or not, the Bible's told me what I ought to do. Do unto them as I would want done unto me, and I know what I want done unto me. I want the heels to click and a salute to occur when I ask for something. I want to be forgiven and overlooked when I ask for something stupid. And so I hope that I give that to my parents. This is the this is the rule. This is the law and the prophets. This was cutting through the Pharisees. Do you know what the Pharisees would do? While they're in the mirror, strapping on their box that's on their forehead with Bible verses in it, while they're there, they're thanking, they're thanking God in their profane and pagan hearts that they had donated all their assets to the temple so they wouldn't have to give any to their parents. Are you all with me? Do you all know that that's taught in the Bible? That is pagan, profane, and vile. And the Lord Jesus Christ was blasting all that. Forget strapping that stuff on your forehead. It doesn't mean anything to me. Get out there and take your parents out for breakfast this morning and tell them that whatever they have need of for the rest of their lives to sustain them, you will give it. That's what Jesus taught. 
And if they'd have been thinking of how they wanted their children to treat them, they would have done that too. Because there was going to come a time when they wouldn't be able to take care of themselves, and they'd want their children taking care of them, not donating everything to the temple. I hope you're with me. This is the word of the Lord. This is what we ought to remember, and this is what we ought to do. And if people were to do this, they would be great in the sight of the Lord and great in the sight of men. It's such a simple rule. What keeps us from doing it? We're selfish and we're proud. We want them to do it to us first. We want to treat others the way they treat us so that we can punish them for the way they have treated us. We want to teach them a lesson. But we ought to be wanting to teach them the lesson of Christian charity and love. And that is showing it first. Those of you that are married, have you ever laid in bed at night? You're on one side and your spouse is on the other side. You're both laying there in a very vulnerable physical position. You've dreamed about this night all your life. (laughs) You're in bed with a naked woman. Whoa! Life is good! But you lay there in the dark. You're upset and angry on your side of the bed. They're upset and angry on their side of the bed. No child in here can even understand the pain that I'm talking about. Do they, married people? It's terrible. All these little twits that aren't married yet... All they can think that marriage is, and I love every one of these twits. These children think that marriage is dating with sex every night, every morning, every afternoon, every midnight snack. And it's all they can think of. But if you ever laid in that bed, there you are with the one you chose, the one you loved, very vulnerable to you. You ought to be making love. You ought to be holding each other. But instead, you're steaming upset, you're mad at each other. And the reasoning goes something like this. Doesn't she know yet what she did that torqued me off? We've been married for so long, she ought to know what's wrong. Why doesn't she roll over and say that she's sorry and end this? If she was a good woman, she'd roll over and end this. I ain't gonna roll over. If I roll over, that acts like, that's, that looks like nothing happened. This is serious. She hurt me. Doesn't she know that? We've been married for so long, she should have been able to tell by the look on my face when she did it that I'm upset about what she did. Why doesn't she roll over and end it? Why don't you just find the book of life and draw a line through your name, you know? That is so wicked. Look at what the verse tells us to do. Roll over! Roll over, touch her, put your arms around her, and end the little difficulty that you're having. That's what Matthew 7.12 is teaching. You young people that aren't married yet, I don't care how nice they are when you haven't married them yet. Once the excitement wears off, you're going to have some events like I'm talking about, but do you want to have great marriages? Roll over first. I hope he doesn't roll over before I can roll over. Oh, I wish we were fighting like that in bed. I hope I can roll over first. Before they roll over, then I can get the glory and be the glorious man of Proverbs 19.11 and have overlooked a transgression. Oh, I bet it was a big one. You know, are they usually big ones or are they little tiny, tiny ones? Are they little tiny, tiny ones? And we're so proud and we're so selfish we don't roll over. Do you know what Matthew 7.12 says when I read it? It says roll over. And be the first one to say that you're sorry. Wouldn't that be wonderful? This is the word of the Lord. I think Jesus Christ taught the most glorious gospel, the most glorious news that has ever been heard by anyone, anywhere, in one verse. In one verse, he said all that I just said to you, and a thousand times more. Oh, yes. I could chase down every relationship you have with every one and solve it with one verse. You say, I can't stand working for a boss that doesn't communicate clearly. It is so frustrating. Hate my job. I never know if I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know if he's pleased with me. He doesn't tell me when, where, what, and how to do things. The same onerous man that says that probably has a wife that doesn't have a clue about what he wants, really, or whether he's pleased with her or not. 
if he would just learn to do it toward his wife, you know what? Things might just change on the job. But whether they changed or not doesn't matter, does it? Because the Lord's told us to do it anyway. Because this is the law and the prophets. When you look at your Bible, three quarters of it is the Old Testament. Do you want to summarize the Old Testament in one sense? Matthew 7.12. This is the law and the prophets. Treat other people the way you want to be treated. You know we can keep on going, but we cannot keep on going. Verses 13 and 14. This is his invitation. Enter ye in at the straight gate. Enter ye in at the straight gate. So many men get up in pulpits and say, all you have to do is invite Jesus into your heart this morning and you can know that you're going to heaven when you die. You'll never have to do anything else. There is nothing you can do, sinner. Just invite Him into your heart. The Lord Jesus Christ would open His invitation with these words. Enter ye in at the straight gate. And they understood what the word straight meant. I've already explained it to you once this morning. The word straight should be understood in the sense of a straight jacket. It means that you are very bound up. It is very tight. It is uncomfortable. It is not pleasing to the flesh. You cannot move the way you want to. You are bound up to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Enter ye in at the straight gate. Because the Lord Jesus Christ would give invitations like this. If any man come unto me and hate not his father, his mother, his children, his parents, his sister, his brother, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. You must learn to hate your life in order to follow the religion that I have. And he said it this way, in this place, enter ye in at the straight gate. And do you know what that straight gate is? It's the gate that Jesus Christ has just described in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's the straight gate of not hating your brother in your heart. It's the straight gate of not lusting after a woman with your eyes and your mind. It's the straight gate of being slapped by someone and giving them the other cheek. It's the straight gate of loving your enemies. That's the straight gate. I want to remind you of something, that the gates that we're about to look at here for a few minutes, these gates are not the gates of Israel versus the gates of Egypt. Jesus didn't have any concern about the gates of the Egyptian religion. They were so far from the truth, they didn't even take one sentence of the New Testament. The two gates here are the gates of his religion and the gates of the Pharisee religion. The gates of true Christianity and the gates of carnal Christianity. The gates of traditionalism versus the gates of the Bible. Straight is the gate. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. What is that wide gate and broad way? It's the way of man-made religion. It's the Pharisees. They made religion quite comfortable. You could strap a little Bible on and then live any way you wanted to. You could get rid of any woman that you wanted to get rid of and get a new wife just by abusing the divorce laws of Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 24. Oh, when you start preaching a religion like that, the gate gets very wide and the way gets broad. And we've got that today facing us in this country and is the greatest threat we face as a church. It is the greatest threat your family faces and your soul faces. There is a religion out there in the name of Jesus Christ where they water everything down so there are no claims left of the Word of God on people's lives. There's no claims left. There's no power or authority in the preaching that's done out there. It's all to entertain. And so it's a wide gate. They make it as easy to get in as possible. And it's a broad way. And there's many that go in there at. It's the popular religion. Children, this is why we are in this little assembly. There are huge Baptist churches in Greenville. We will not have anything to do with them because they preach a wide gate and a broad way. That wide gate means it's easy to go in there. It's easy to live their religion because they don't make any demands on your life. The broad way and many going in it mean it's the popular church. It's the churches you drive by on your way here and you see hundreds and hundreds of cars in the parking lot. It's Brookwood. Church.org. On I-385, it's the World Redemption Outreach Center off of Haywood Road. The Lord Jesus Christ said, enter ye in at the straight gate. 
For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. There's many religious people on their way to hell. And they're on their way to hell because they show no sign of the life of Christ in them. The sign of the life of Christ in them is living the way that I've just preached to you this morning and the 14 mornings previous to this from these three chapters. This is the religion of Jesus Christ. It's the straight gate and the narrow way. And Jesus, as He opens up His invitation and His application, He said, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For you to truly follow Jesus Christ, it's going to be restricting on your life. Don't resent the restricting. Rejoice in it. Because He's restricting you into the way of righteousness. He's restricting you into a way of living that will bring you peace in this world. But even that's not the reason we want to go in there at. We want to go in there at because we want to please the Lord Jesus Christ and find ourselves accepted in that day when we stand before Him. Enter ye in at the straight gate. He tells you right off the bat, Jesus never pulled punches. He said, if you're going to follow Me, you're going to have to lose your life. Enter ye in at the straight gate. My religion is restrictive. My religion takes the whole Old Testament and summarizes it by doing to others as you would have them do unto you. I don't take the Old Testament and reduce it to washing of pots and cups and of hands. Like the Pharisees. My religion is different. They have a wide gate and they have a broad way and many are in it. It's the popular way of religion and mine's a minority. But they're on the way to destruction. Verse 14, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life and few there be that find it. Children, don't ever forget that the Bible tells us few there be that find it. Our church is going to be few. No matter how well we preach, no matter how well we sing, no matter what kind of a building we were to build, if we were to preach the the gospel of Jesus Christ, we would always be few in number. It's never going to be the many. The many is in the wide gate and the broad way that leads to destruction. The way that leads to life, where you're pleasing the Lord Jesus Christ, you get life now, and you get it in the world to come, few find it. Because it's a straight and restrictive gate, and it's a narrow way. You have to follow very closely to make sure you're in that narrow way, and you don't get out into that broad thoroughfare where you can worship God. Listen, we're all going to the same place. We just have a little different way of worshiping. It doesn't matter. We can just all love each other. And they're loving each other on the way to hell because Jesus said, you'll do it my way or no way. Straight is the gate, narrow is the way. It was pretty narrow in Noah's day. He was the only one. And God gave him his wife and his three sons and their wives. So there were eight in the ark, but it was one man that found the, the the straight gate and the narrow way and he pressed into it. The Bible says that to take the kingdom of heaven, you have to take it violently. The Bible says that those that enter... The kingdom of Jesus Christ, press into it. It's hard to get into it because you have to repent and overthrow your life and live a different way than you would by nature. You have to live differently than these other churches do. These other churches don't care what you watch on the television. They don't care what you listen to. They don't care what you wear. They don't care how or where you date. They don't care because if they ever took a position on those things, it would crush their membership. And they wouldn't be able to meet their mortgage payment and they'd be in deep financial trouble. And so they keep widening the gate, broadening the way to keep their religion going. And Jesus here is preaching not against Egyptians, not against Philistines, not against Greeks, not against Romans. He's preaching against Pharisees, priests, scribes, lawyers, and Sadducees. He says they're in the wide gate and the broad way. But if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to enter in at the straight gate. And there's only going to be a few that find it. We're always going to be unpopular because the many are over there in the broad way and the wide gate. We're always going to be among the few. We don't like being few. We wish it was more, but we're never going to complain because it's always been that way. The Lord God told Israel, I chose you because you were the smallest of all people. Jesus said about his church, he called it a little flock. Jesus said, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. In Acts chapter 1, after three and a half years of the most perfect ministry that the world has ever seen, there were 120 in the upper room. Don't ever forget these things. Evil seducers are waxing worse and worse. Compromise is getting greater and greater. We cannot compromise. We have to keep our gate straight. 
We cannot make our gate a little more comfortable by undoing one strap. All you women, all you young people, think about the different things that come out of this pulpit from time to time. I can't undo one strap of the straitjacket. If God told us to have it strapped up, let's strap it up. If we're going to do undo one strap, we ought to take the whole thing off and go join brookwoodchurch.org. Otherwise, let's keep it strapped up so that we go in the straight gate because it leads to life, and that's where I want to be found. Lord, help us to stay in it. The tastes of our nation are changing drastically. Baptists are ashamed of being Baptists. They're ashamed of the mode of baptism. They want to say, well, anything will really work. They don't even want to be called a church anymore. Religion around us doesn't care. They don't preach on what you can't do. All they want to do is give you some little sermonette about working and making money and, and enjoying the prosperity gospel and sowing a seed and getting rich. Will you sow another seed in my ministry? I promise the Lord's blessing on you. And all they want is your money. We're going to get to that in the next verses because Jesus moves right from the straight gate right into false teachers. And verses 15 through 20 will be false teachers. And verses 21 through 23 will be false professors. This is the Lord Jesus Christ's invitation. He's inviting you right now. There's a way to heaven. Lord, who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Who shall abide in thy tabernacle? He that doeth these things shall never be moved. That's his invitation. We started with it this morning in Psalm 15. We've come to it in Matthew 7. This is the religion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on Him today. He is the Son of God. And whether you want to face Him today or not, you will face Him one second after your death. You will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want to stand there, then cast your confidence upon Him today and go out of this place committing to live the life that He has taught us here to live. That is to enter in at the straight gate. It leads to life. It leads to life now. It has promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. That's a wonderful blessing. We're taking no risks at all to follow Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? If you were to cast your life aside and say, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ as closely as I can understand the Bible, what's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is you'd have the most pleasure-filled, fulfilling life possible because the Bible is the greatest manual on how to live happily and successfully, and then you would get eternity. Let's say there was no heaven. One of these agnostics or atheists says there is no heaven. What if you were to live in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and there was no heaven? You would still have had a very functional and fulfilling and wonderful life with pleasures that can't be matched by anyone else. But if anyone wants to say, I'll take my chances... I don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God or anything like what you've preached, and I'll take my chances after death. What if they're wrong? Here's how they're wrong. Their lives are dysfunctional messes. All you have to do is look at America and see all the pain, the divorce, the drugs, the drunkenness, and the dysfunctional families to know that it doesn't work to live the way they do. And then what if they're wrong and there is a hell to pay after death? It's simple, brethren. There's only one way to live. For time and eternity, it's to cast your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, let's ask. Let's seek. Let's knock. Let's enter in at the straight gate. And may the Lord see us safely to His eternal kingdom. Amen. Amen.